My name is Bonnie Landry. I'd like to welcome you to my podcast with my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, where we explore the questions about homeschooling and family life and how we can make joy normal. Good afternoon to all my listeners and good afternoon to Heather Boyd, my guest here this afternoon. Welcome, Heather. It's good to be here, Bonnie. Yeah, I am so delighted to have you. And I really, what I wish is that I had you 25 years ago <laughs> when I was had all those little kids because uh, Heather is a, a sleep specialist. Would that be a sort of a reasonable way to describe you? I'll read off a little bit of your bio, but... Yeah, I mean, we there's no sleep expert, I don't think, because when we are raising our kids, even when we're trained to understand sleep, there's no real expert because every baby is so different. Yeah, and relationships are a dance, right? So yeah, I would like to read off, first of all, what you have your, your tagline on your website, because it's so beautiful. And then I'll read a little bit about your, your bio. But this is brilliant. I support tired parents who want alternatives to sleep training. Feel confident, informed, and supported about helping your baby's development through attachment-based holistic strategies. I support tired parents. <laughs> Don't we all just want to hear that when we're tired parents? Oh, we just want arms wrapped around us, right? Oh. To know that everything is still going to be okay and that there's a yes. path out, right? Yes, absolutely. So Heather has been an occupational therapist for more than 20 years, but her real-life education comes from being a mom of three. Heather's worked her entire career with babies, birth to three, in home-based early intervention and in two neonatal follow-up clinics. So she supports parents in understanding their baby's development and how to create a family environment emotionally and physically so that sleep and development are naturally supported. So I have a, a great deal of questions for you, but I, I uh, was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about your family first. You're also a homeschool mom, so that's uh, yes, delightful for yeah, us. I have three boys and they're all elementary school age now. But they were my education nice. around sleep because sleep, even with an OT background, working with babies from zero to three, sleep came up. But I had no idea until I became a parent what these moms were really telling me in terms of how tired they were. Yeah. And when I became a parent, I realized even though I've only worked with babies from zero to three, I know nothing or almost nothing about sleep. And what I thought I knew was based on kind of the traditional behavioral approach where it was sleep right. train or nothing when I struggled with sleep with my babies and then decided to go into private practice. I thought, what is the biggest challenge that I had? And what I suspect most parents have is it's around sleep. So my boys each had a very different mm. sleep personality, very different sleep needs in terms of the support they needed. And so with every boy that we had, it was this relearning around looking at what does our baby need to be able to sleep well? What does our baby need to fall asleep feeling safe and secure? So it was a, it was, that's where my real education comes from is through parenting all three yeah. of our boys through that. What a beautiful thing to be able to take those elements of your background and be able to sort of pull them together for for the support of parents. One of the things that, you know, I mean, essentially sleep is not a homeschooling topic. I, I, you know, often talk about things other than homeschooling, but I think sleep is probably one of the most fundamental things in family life that, and 
poor sleep is going to lead to dis- poor decision making, really, or decisions that are based on the zombie uh, mindset, you know, that you experience when you're sleeping, which could include things like, should I continue homeschooling my kids? Or should I have another baby? But suddenly you're in this position that you, you just think, how could I possibly handle any more? Because I'm so sleep deprived. And you know, honestly, I was far tired. I'm 58. I was far tireder at 30, you know, and between probably 30 and 40 than I am now because I sleep now, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I was too. I absolutely was too. And I, I think back to when we decided to have our second and we were not getting sleep at this point. We had an 18 month old who didn't. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to use the word bad sleeper, but I'll say that he didn't have a very good relationship <laughs> with sleep. <laughs> and we finally decided it yeah. can't get any worse. <laughs> so let's go for it. And it turned out, and we discovered this with, with all three of our boys, by the time he was two and a half, when our second was born, sleep, the the light switch went off mm-hmm. or on, whichever way you want to look at it for sleep. And we were sleeping much better by that stage, even with yeah. the newborn. And it was that perspective. I could have used that support or perspective for two and a half years to know how do you go through this roller yeah. coaster of fluctuating sleep support needs, of up and down sleep skill development um, without feeling like we were doing it. Wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's some books that I think are, are and some philosophies, I guess is a better way to say it. I think can very much go against the natural connection that we have with our children and they can feel very wrong. And yet they seem like it's the only sleep advice out there that a lot of parents come across because they're desperate and they, they're looking for things and this is sort of available to them. I thought it would be kind of important to start with how does lack of sleep or poor sleeping habits or you know, just extreme tiredness affect us as parents and also as our, our babies? How does that affect us? Well, maybe let's start there. Yeah, well, we know that sleep is so fundamentally important for health, right? The the evidence is really, really clear. What's not clear, or which gets what gets muddled when that information gets shared is the concern that parents end up having around sleep deprivation with their babies and the impact that it may have on development. Now, we know as adults, we function best with sleep that most of us need seven to nine hours a night. There may be a few that are, you know, at the low, low, low end, but it's very rare. And we know that our immune systems are healthier, that our cognitive abilities are healthier. Um, Everything goes more smoothly when we get sleep. Yeah. With babies, it's not that clear. And in fact, the evidence is not very strong that uh, interrupted sleep impacts development. So in other words... Babies are expected developmentally to have very interrupted sleep. Mm -hmm. It's part of normal development and part of normal brain maturation. And as long as babies are being supported in how their sleep development is unfolding, the impact on on development is not a strong connection. So when parents find out that, it relieves this huge pressure of, you know, parents are tired themselves, mm-hmm. but on top of that, they're using a lot of energy worrying about whether their babies are also not getting enough sleep. Right. And most of the time, it's not the case. Most of the time, babies who are waking up frequently are still getting enough sleep to be developing well and to be healthy. So when we take half of the equation out, the baby piece, 
then we're left with how do we support parents in getting enough sleep to feel well enough to be maybe not optimal because it, yeah. you know, it's a tiring, very high investment of energy period of parenting, yeah. right? So maybe not well rested, but a little more well rested than they are. Mm -hmm. Well, I've heard this term, people use this term sleep hygiene, kind of indicating, I gather what they mean from that is, is sort of indicating that the child is getting a good solid X amount of hours of sleep per night. And yet if it's not, if, if we, you know, so-called train them to do that, but developmentally, that's not where they're supposed to be there, there, there must be some negative uh, impact you know, so what we call sleep hygiene may be a very misleading term. Yes, I think sleep hygiene often gets kind of sucked into the sleep training mm -hmm. realm because it sounds very rigid and routine or schedule right. oriented. I prefer to think of sleep hygiene more as what is the container that we have sleep in? So what's the environment around the baby that allows sleep to unfold as it should? Right. For that particular right. baby. So are they having, I like to call them invitations for sleep. Is sleep being offered at times where the baby's been awake for long enough that they're tired? Um, is sleep being offered at a time in the evening where circadian rhythm is pulling a baby naturally right. into sleep so that we're not working any harder than we have to, to get sleep to happen? We're inviting sleep at an optimal time. Some other pieces that I like to bring in around sleep hygiene include things like lighting or noise or even just how close babies get to be to parents to feel safe and secure to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always think hygiene sounds very much like brushing your teeth, <laughs> brush your teeth three times a day so that you can keep your teeth and gums healthy. And with hyg sleep hygiene, I feel like it's much more fluid than that. Right. It's, it's about offering the opportunity for sleep at, at the right time. Being open to the idea that you're learning about what your baby needs for sleep rather mm -hmm. than trying to fit your baby into a fixed three times a day or, you know, three naps a day in a bedtime at 630, for example. It's much, it can right. be much more responsive. You know, years ago, it's reminding me of a story. Years ago, I was a Laleche League leader for a few years. And as I had more children, I had to give that up. But one of the stories that I can't remember if I read it in The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding or, or somewhere else, but the story was a, a Laleche League leader had been contacted by one of the women coming to her sessions and said, uh, she said, I'm, I'm really having trouble with my whatever three month old. I'm really having trouble with my baby and I just don't know what to do. I was wondering if maybe we could meet, you know, privately. And she said, sure, well, why don't you come over for a cup of tea? And she went over to the woman's house and the woman had a baby just a little bit older than hers. And in the process of their having tea, she was dandling the baby on her hip and switching position every five minutes. And the baby wasn't fussing, but she was, she was preempting the needs of the baby by up on the shoulder, down on my arm, over my knee, on my hip, lay on the floor for a little while and responding to those little tiny indications that we get that our child is maybe getting bored or maybe getting agitated or whatever. She said to the, the, the guest said to the Laleche League leader, do you, do you always do that? Is this always how you are with your child or this is how your child behaves? And she said, yeah. And she goes, well, then there's nothing wrong with my child. <laughs> but when you fight that, 
you know, then, then absolutely it's going to feel all wrong, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's the fighting it that takes so much energy. And in fact, we, I'm sure we've all seen the memes uh, or memes online where they, they have like this, it's like this war with our kids over nap times or bedtimes. And I think war around sleep is the absolute opposite of the kind of calm, um, almost resigned environment. We need to be resigned to the fact that we can't make our babies sleep. You know, that futility of, and I think it may be one of the first lessons as parents that we have in the lack of control we have, you know, to be resigned or to realize the futility of trying to make our kids sleep versus giving them what they need to be able to accept sleep. And there's such a, release of the heavy work of or the burden of trying to make something happen that is not ultimately our responsibility and we're not able to do that for our yeah yeah what we can do is again give them what they need to be able to accept sleep when the time is yeah right. okay so i want to ask you some sort of specific questions um so so first of all are there safe ways to bed share? That's for people who are, are considering bed sharing. Let's start there. Is there safe ways to bed share? And what are your recommendations? Because of course, what we see in the sort of the sleep training is that bed sharing is totally off the table, right? Yeah. Well, I'll start by saying that the regulations and guidelines from public health in every region vary and are usually not all that receptive to bed sharing. Right. Um, they are focused on the risk and not focused on the benefit okay. um, and they're not, and therefore aren't looking at that, that risk management approach that I, I think ought to be on the table. We know through history that bed sharing has been the way that humans have raised babies for millennia. Um, we know mm -hmm. that in countries where bed sharing is um, more common or at least more accepted part of the culture uh, that SIDS rates are often low, quite low. Um, so the short answer is yes, there are safe ways to bed share and that every family, I believe, should be making that decision on their own based on their family circumstances and their baby's individual risks. Um, the sources that I go to, and I'll, and I'll admit as a healthcare provider, it's been a very interesting um, path to try to navigate between the public health mm -hmm. messaging around bed sharing, what we did in our own home with bed sharing, which was to discover it at mm -hmm. six months when we weren't getting any sleep, when my littlest, my, my eldest was six <laughs> months old and it was reactive bed sharing. It was, we don't know what else to do in this is yeah. really working to accepting it as our first and foremost approach to sleep. And so as a healthcare mm -hmm. professional, I've really had to warm up to the idea that I can, um, not necessarily promote bed sharing. I, I think it needs to be a family's decision, but to know that there is a mm -hmm. lot of very sound science to support safe bed sharing. And I'll direct any of your listeners to access James McKenna's material on bed sharing to navigate that. Okay. La Leche League also has beautiful resources, including a nice, very graphic mm -hmm. um, description of the key factors for creating a safe sleep, sleep space. But in terms of the research. Okay. So both of these on their website? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, okay. James McKenna is out of Notre Dame. He has a whole maternal infant sleep laboratory 
where he's cool. studied what does it look like when mm. a breastfeeding mother is bed sharing with a baby and are there things in that relationship that dyad or that dance that actually improve the safety of bed sharing and if we can figure out what those factors are we can promote those as being really important parts of of the bed sharing environment i'll, right. I'll add as well that i think one of the biggest barriers to safe bed sharing in in addition to and i guess there's two approaches here i want to highlight one is that the messaging around not bed sharing has been so strong that many parents will end up choosing a less safe alternative simply to avoid bed sharing. So right. for example, having an infant over their shoulder in a lounge chair, chair, yeah, which yeah. Is, or on a couch where they're trying to stay awake on the couch um, versus safe and planned bed sharing where you can set up the space. But I think yeah. as well, um, when parents are choosing to bed share, the planning ahead piece is important. You know, you want to, mm -hmm. even if you don't think you're going to bed share, if you plan for it, then you've created a safer space right off the, right off the right. top. Yeah. We had a similar um, rolling out of our kind of acceptance of it. With my first, it was just like not even, you know, not even on my radar. And with my second, she was, woke up a lot through the night and, and just sheer exhaustion led us to, you know, I'd get up two or three times or whatever, and then just bring her into bed with us because it just made more sense. With the third, I had started to read some studies on cultures that bed share and the relationship between SIDS and attachment and all of that. From then on, it was planned. And so, so much easier once it was just a planned decision that we made. We had what we called the decoy crib. So we, set <laughs> we set up a crib in our bedroom. We got over that eventually, but it was one of those things that culturally, you know, 30 years ago, just so not done. You know, I mean, it was, it was in other places, of course, but not in, in my culture. Yeah, it wasn't part of the natural conversation around sleep, was it? Yeah, exactly. And so the decoy crib was what we used as like our bed rail, not very safe. And we found that out, fortunately, but you know, by a couple of small like, oops, okay, this isn't going to work. And then getting proper, you know, set up for, for co-sleeping. But yeah, it made all the difference. Just my attitude being, okay, we are going to co-sleep as opposed to I'm going to fight co-sleeping, right? Because a world of difference. Absolutely. Well, it's your story reminds me of when I presented at a OT conference um, in Ontario and bed sharing was one tenth of the presentation, if, if that, but it came up in one of the case studies I presented. The conversation after my talk, and there must have been about 15 OTs, and in occupational therapy, most are women. So almost everyone watching my presentation was a mother. And they all mm -hmm. had stories to share about um, how bed sharing came to their family, how they came to terms with this idea that it could work and it could be done safely. But then that challenge of right. the, the shame that they had or the secrecy they had, like, do they tell their doctor? Do they tell their colleagues um, who may be in public health or yeah. other areas of healthcare? And it was, it floored me that even healthcare professionals who could do the research and make a reasonable decision for their family still carried that doubt or concern or shame around doing something that wasn't, you know, approved of. Um, in general, in a culture. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. And yeah, I mean, I've talked to lots of mums over the years too who've had a similar experience, you know. So I think more normal now, but not normal still. Like I still think there's still a lot of... Because if you bring it up and somebody is is you know say against it, that their their response will often be, you know, well that's not safe. So that kind of brings me to the next question was was how parents navigate all the conflicting advice around baby sleep. Mm-hmm. So and I mean this comes up around homeschooling, around baby sleep, around how to when to start solids, all of that. So how do we navigate that sort of thing in, in particular around baby sleep for today? You know, because this can really undermine our confidence as parents. It sure can. I feel like that confidence level and the undermining of confidence is probably one of the biggest barriers to enjoying parenthood, right? Because we we are not in an era where we are short on information. We have access to so much information. And then we end up having to filter it out or decide what information applies to us And that means inevitably we're getting these huge conflicts in what we're reading around what the quote unquote right thing to do is as a parent. And with sleep, it's so muddied by cultural norms or by expectations or perceptions of safety that we continually, especially the first time round with first babies, Mm -hmm. we're looking for validation from what we're reading. We're looking for to see ourselves in what we're reading. And if we're not finding it, then we think we're doing it wrong. Or if Mm -hmm. our babies are not sleeping the way the book that we're reading says they should sleep, then we're doing it wrong. And Mm -hmm. I think the best thing that I have found that supports families in kind of peeling off that layer of self-doubt is to know that the books are are there. They They will still be there even if you don't open them. They're there if you need them. But the expert, like the best one to know exactly what they need is the baby in front of you. So if you turn to them as the expert and just approach it with some curiosity around what is it that you need to be able to sleep well? Do you Mm -hmm. need contact napping with me or do you like your own space? Do you need it to be pitch black or is it okay to have a sliver of light coming in the window? Do you need a noise machine to feel, um, to relax and to sleep a bit more or movement or, or nursing? And if we continually remind ourselves that the, our babies know what they need better than anyone else, and there's mm-hmm. no book written about them specifically, then we mm-hmm. start with that. And the books can be an adjunct to help guide us through the inevitable ups and downs of sleep development as, as everything unfolds, especially in the first few years. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, again, the the analogy of say homeschooling, or walking, if you know, or speech development, all of those things, you know, we feel undermined. We read, okay, we read something, and we think, okay, this is uh, my child is you know three months behind in in their motor skills or in their whatever, and we can, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. And I think often we also need to be talking to other moms around us, experienced moms, because, you know, any experienced mom will say, oh, hey, yeah, that might be the norm, that might be the average even, but even in your own family, you're going to have a huge range of of when children read, when children walk, when children can pick up a Cheerio off the floor or whatever. Well, because we get into this rush, right? And I'm I'm thinking Mm -hmm. in particular right now with, with the homeschooling, you think, well, if we can just get, yeah, through this milestone, like get them reading or get past Mm -hmm. this math concept, 
or get them sleeping through the night. And it's this rush to push forward as if getting there were the main point versus Mm -hmm. just looking at in this moment, what does my baby need or what does my child need to gain Mm -hmm. skill or gain competence or gain even just gain a sense of who they are, right? Um, Mm -hmm. We see that with homeschool kids. That's why I think it's so, you know, homeschool kids are in general so awesome because they've they've gone one step at a time to figure out who they are and to bring that back down to sleep you know we get a sense of when we're tired we listen to our bodies we figure out what we need to rest and our babies are just just starting to do that and the more we can look to them to figure out what is driving them towards sleep and what is a way we can support that instead of making them sleep in the same way, what is it that's bringing our kids towards reading competency? What do they love to read? What captures their attention? What are they interested in versus where we want them to be 12 months from now? Because that's just, it just yeah. gets caught up in this rat race of development, right? Whether it's reading or sleeping, yeah. it's, it's a rat race. Absolutely. When a baby, I, I would assume that when a baby is sort of naturally allowed to, to, work with the sleep and everybody has a different sleep cycle, you know, kind of thing that, that when they're allowed to sort of naturally discover when they're tired and uh, sleep is a comfortable, happy thing that it's as they get older, that's going to, I think would have quite a developmental impact as opposed to you lay down now because it's eight o'clock, right. As opposed to, um, you know, we, we move into sleep very safely and, and calmly and happily and when you're tired, you go to sleep because it seems to me that that would be, there would be both developmental and sort of cognitive repercussions, I guess, to, to making a baby, trying to make a baby sleep when they're not tired, say, or, or even if they are tired, sleep when maybe they're upset or they're angsty and therefore sleep is not going to happen in the way that we would, uh, we would hope to see it happen. Yeah, there, there's got to be some developmental repercussions there, hey? Well, yeah, because I, I think especially when you look at what what's the big picture, and this fits so well into the way we think about homeschooling too. What's our big goal as parents? It's to bring our kids to adulthood where they know who they are, they trust themselves and their own judgments and decisions, um, they can navigate the world well. And that starts with understanding their body and listening to their body cues like you know are they hungry and they they know that food satisfies them are they restless and they know that movement satisfies them and are they tired and do they know that sleep satisfies them I always like discussing with parents that if we can make sleep feel delicious for babies you lead them there it can be yeah Yeah, that it feels it's not a punishment it's not a it's not about isolation or i mean sleep is about separation yeah. when we lose consciousness we are breaking that attachment through sleep or unconsciousness but it doesn't have to be a tearing apart or a separation that's so contrived because we think 8, 8 p.m is supposed to be bedtime mm-hmm. um, and so that fluidity of knowing that when our babies get to have that invitation and the conditions that support sleep when they're tired, then they can sleep when they need to sleep. 
And I have a story that I, I think of when I speak about that. And that was with our youngest who, by being our third baby, we were much more relaxed and fluid around sleep. And, and partly it was temperament. I won't dismiss that partly it's, it was his sleep temperament. But when he was a toddler, he would tell us, I'm tired, I need a nap. And he'd start walking upstairs on his own to his bed. And we couldn't believe it because we had struggled so much with sleep with our first. Right. Now, eventually, his toddler curiosity also went out, and he didn't want to go up to the bedroom to sleep because he didn't want to miss anything. But then, and this, I just think this was a kiddo who listens to his body and knew mm-hmm. he was tired, but it was in conflict with missing out on what was happening. Right. <laughs> so that was a stage where he would fall asleep on the arm of the couch, like draped like a sloth over his arm of the couch (laughs) and then eventually he would drag the blanket and pillow onto the couch lay it all out for himself and crawl it like he'd make his bed on the couch and fall asleep for a nap and I thought here's a kiddo who has found a way to meet both his needs I don't want to leave the action but my body needs sleep yeah and I don't think we could have gotten there with our first because we were trying so hard to go against the grain for him of when sleep was going to happen yeah. And another thing that kind of pops into my mind is is in terms of just leading children towards sleep. If children sense that sleeping is a time that's going to provoke angst or upset or even anger in their parent, that's going to be hard on them. They're going to, you know, fight against it even more, I would think, depending on the yeah. kid, of course. But I could see that being if if that's how a sleep was you know, every night, oh, you know, and you're starting to feel like you're winding up because you know you want to get them to sleep pretty soon. And it's going to be the, you know, the sleep battle. Yes. Yeah. Well, and there's this counter will that is so natural for most kiddos, I'd say, especially in the toddler years where their radar is so ramped up to know when you have an agenda that it almost yes. takes this, um, this special kind of place that you find in yourself to again, let go of this idea that you're running the agenda and to, yeah. to tamp down that anticipation that event, you know, I always talk about how when we're anxious for something to happen and we're putting all our eggs in that basket, like it's sleep time and we've got to gun it to get them to sleep so we can have time <laughs> to wash dishes or relax. Our, right. What happens while our shoulders go up, our heart yeah. rate goes up, our eyebrows furrow with intensity even our arms aren't as soft and goodness that doesn't lead to sleep very easily for our babies so even just being aware you know we talk about babies getting to know their bodies when we're aware of our own bodies we can see how even our own posture or our own nervous system is impacting how the sleep invitation is going to happen yeah and they're so they're so connected uh, to us, they just pick up on those cues so readily, you know, as like getting out the door is the uh, analogy that I often use. As soon as we think, okay, we're gonna get out the door, I gotta load all the kids, I gotta gather the stuff and all of that. If you can eliminate the the angst around that in yourself, going out the door is always, you know, way, way, way easier because they're not picking up and like, okay, what's wrong here? There's, you know, they, their alarm goes up, right? Yes, the alarm does go off, doesn't it? Yeah. They might not know why. And there's nothing mm-hmm. inherently alarming. It's just that our nervous systems are rampant. <laughs> I always, I, I think back to when my kids were, you know, they were all toddler or I'd say preschool and above. 
And Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, you know, bedtime is the end of the day. It's the time when we might be the most likely to be cranky because we're all getting tired. So if I can find a way that bedtime can be the cherry on top of the day. Mm -hmm. And I, I would think to myself, it doesn't matter how many things went wrong today. It doesn't matter what, you know, whether I raised my voice or whether dinner got burned, it doesn't matter if I can finish Mm -hmm. the day with the cherry on top, then that's what matters. And I focused on that. I thought that's going to be my goal. Just make it the cherry on top. And so that's a great phrase. Yeah. yeah. And it really changed the way that I, I I stopped rushing into bed. You know, we, we had gotten it caught up a little bit in getting through that process. And I thought we can slow this down. I can leave enough Mm -hmm. time for books. We can leave enough time for a gratitude practice. We can leave enough time for them to unpack their day and tell me stories Mm -hmm. without me trying to cut them short because of the time on the clock. Yeah. And they said that bedtime, well, they, they said dad's fun during the day, but you're fun at bedtime. I thought I, (laughs) I may, I'm an imperfect parent but I've, I've accomplished my goal of making bedtime feel lovely nice. and delicious. And it made yeah. everything happen a little more smoothly. Yeah. For us, we actually was usually alternate roles. So I was usually with the babies and nursing toddlers and whatnot. And my husband would take over bedtime. But we had made a conscious decision at some point in the journey. This has to be happy. We want our children to go to bed safe and happy. So the same idea as the cherry on top that it just, you know, it, it's, yeah, sure. It's going to take time. But, but fighting is just them, then it's not exactly relaxing as a parent to come and meet up with your spouse after the kids are in bed when you've tussled for an hour. <laughs> Might as well make it pleasant. Well, and I always think it's never going to happen sooner if I try mm-hmm. to rush it. It will probably take at least as long, maybe longer, and no one's going to be yeah. happy. Whereas slowing down sometimes does, has for us led to bedtime being on time or yeah. earlier. And it's counterintuitive because it feels slower. So we think it'll take longer, but everyone's more relaxed and we need to be relaxed for sleep to happen. Yeah. And just for our own creativity and, and all of that, you know, we had just a couple of episodes ago, it comes out tomorrow. Actually, we talked a lot about just slowing down and what the impact that has on your whole life. Right. I was wondering, I, I love, I love that all of this is just, feels positive. This conversation feels positive and your approach is clearly just very positive. It's called the plus one theory of education. Let's just take our babies or our other adults or the people in our life exactly where they're at. And, you know, we just move forward one, one motion at a time to work towards, uh, you know, our, the dance, right? That's, (laughs) you know, the dance and, and whatever that is, whether it's sleep or whatever. One of the things that, that, I would like to just hear your response to is crying to sleep. Like for me, I have a very, very gut instinct on that, that it just feels wrong. Connection was very important with myself and my children, both in in the um, early years of motherhood when, uh, or infant development in terms of love, physical closeness, but also in the terms of attachment as they got older and what that meant in terms of discipline and whatnot. Can you speak to that, sort of crying to sleep and the impact that may have on ourselves and our babies? Yeah, well, and it's it's a topic we could spend hours talking about because there is not just looking at the research that we have to try to understand the impact, but also the cultural expectations around it. And then the pressure to sleep train if sleep is not going the way that the books say that they should 
Um, and in fact, my when we approached my physician when my little one was about a year and or less, I guess, and and said sleep wasn't going very well. Unfortunately, the only comment that was made was you're going to need to decide whether you're going to sleep train. And I thought that doesn't fit with this idea of understanding sleep well enough and understanding attachment, the nervous system, and that the nervous system must be relaxed. And the best way to get a relaxed nervous system is through attachment. So when we when we look at the research, unfortunately, some of the studies that show no harm with with cry it out are not well done. So they're not great studies to begin with. And I always have a great deal of concern when a study shows no harm, when I think there may be so many pieces in there that are not being measured to be able to look at harm. Um, It's awfully hard to figure out what you would measure in a study to make that really clear. But when we combine that with an understanding of, of biological development, of brain development and attachment, as well as how terrible it feels for parents, even desperate parents that don't want to sleep train and then feel like that is their only way through. It feels Mm -hmm. terrible. And parenting shouldn't feel that horrible, especially when it involves intentionally separating to make a child figure it out on their own and cry to sleep. But from a, you know, from a, Understanding the process piece of things, what we do know is that for babies that are falling asleep crying, initially, research was feeling like this meant that babies had been trained and would fall asleep and everything was fine. But when we look a little deeper, we know that parents get more sleep with sleep training. They're less interrupted because their baby is not signaling their need through the night anymore. But that baby's cortisol level, so that wake hormone or stress hormone, remains very high. So it's not that they have relaxed Mm -hmm. into sleep. It's they have realized that signaling for support from a parent is not getting what they need. So they stop. It's futile. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a bit frightening. It is. It is, especially when, again, if we're looking at the wrong thing, if we're looking at number of wake-ups, um, yeah. or number of crying out or calling out to a parent in the middle of the night. We're not actually measuring what's happening internally. Right. Add to that, yeah. of course, you know, when we talk about temperament with babies and understanding, you know, orchid babies who have very particular high needs for support from family or from parents versus dandelion children. I don't know if you've ever come across that haven't heard those terms there's actual genes that um can be measured that show orchid children versus dandelion dandelion children they thrive anywhere like they they just thrive anywhere and dandelion and orchid children are tend to be highly sensitive tend to need um parenting that is especially sensitive to their needs and when Mm -hmm. babies are very very young we don't know which babies are orchid babies versus dandelion babies just by looking at them. We don't really know until they're older and we can see just how sensitive they are to their environment. And it makes me grateful that we discovered a more attachment-based approach to sleep because I am certain that one of my kiddos is an orchid child 
And despite mm-hmm. not being a perfect parent, I am relieved that we were very responsive and attachment-based parents to give him what he needed um, because it, right. it certainly supports them in the long run because they're having their mm-hmm. emotional needs met much better. Mm-hmm. You know, we when my second baby was called, so my first baby had been a very easy baby, slept early, slept, you know, I, I just was not a... There was not a lot of challenges, right? And when she was, when my second was born, she was colicky. I was, first of all, very disturbed by this because I thought I was doing something wrong. I thought, well, because if I thought to myself, this is a moment of uh, humility I'm going to share with you. If I thought to myself, I'm really good at this, which I did with my first. I am so good at this. I think sometimes it's easier to have a difficult baby first. right? (laughs) Because you don't know, you don't know any better. <laughs> I know, and and I thought, okay, I've got this nailed. Okay, know what I'm doing here. Have the second one, and it was, of course, I had to. The corollary to that is, I am bad at this, right? I am bad at this. And at some point, you know, when she was a few months old, realizing that it wasn't because I was good or because I was bad. It, it just was. And I needed to, you know, even really a few weeks after she was born, the colic started at, you know, two or three weeks or whatever, and nightly episodic crying and all of that. But it, when I reached that point where, like, I was very uptight with her. And then when I reached that point where I thought, you know, I'm meeting every all of her needs in the best way I can. She's crying. I'm holding her. I'm walking her. I'm singing to her. I'm, you know, I'm just being gentle with her and she's continuing to cry. I'm I'm just going to have to be okay with this. And my whole psyche just relaxed. Right. And I was, and then she did the um, colic went on for a, a period of time, but the whole vibe in the household just ramped down when I could accept that, okay, this is the way it is. And I'm doing whatever I can to meet her needs. And something is creating this, you know, this cry in her and and I don't know what it is, but, but I'm doing everything I can. Everything just sort of chilled out at that point. And, And I thought, boy, I think I was, I was making the problem worse for sure. Just because of my own tension, you know, That comes up so often, Bonnie, and I'm so glad you shared that story because I think it it comes as a surprise to many parents just how much I talk about parent wellness Mm -hmm. and how parents are doing. Like, I don't know, I'm coming to you about sleep. Like, let's talk about my baby. But we can't change the very nature of our babies, right? We are there to support their nature. We are there to get to know them. Like it's a process of discovery, right? And it takes time. The person we have control over is ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I talk a lot about self-regulation because it forms the basis of co-regulation, which is that our babies mirror back that nervous system. You talk about being uptight and that it, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a problem there to start with. The colic was the kind of, stone that started rolling down the hill but then you were pushing it down the hill with your own worry about it yeah and the the power of being able to relax our nervous systems and see just how profound an impact it can have on our baby's sleep i just it can't be underestimated yeah Um, you know and yes there are sometimes actual challenges we need to resolve right Mm -hmm. like call it you know addressing colic or reflux or 
tummy troubles or constipation tongue tie, yeah, yeah. or tongue tie um, or, you know, feeding issues. But those are a small proportion of the overall picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and more often than not, it's this mismatch between what our baby needs from us and what our expectations are. Mm-hmm. And then once our expectations are out of whack, we start getting, yeah, again, those shoulders go up, yeah. and the heart rate goes up, and the, <laughs> the hands clench, and the anxiety about bedtime starts before it's even dinner time because you just mm-hmm. know you have this evening unrolling in front of you that is ten- causing some tension or anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I, just, I, I think you can't underestimate the impact of our own self-regulation on the whole sleep environment. Oh, yeah. Years ago, a friend of mine shared such a helpful image with me. The idea is sort of a sorting exercise, like a like a bucket exercise. And really in life, there's kind of two main buckets. There's all kinds of sub buckets, but there's two main buckets, the can change it bucket and the can't change it bucket. And people go in the can't change it bucket, like even babies. <laughs> Everybody, what can we change? We can change the environment. We can change our attitude. We can change, you know, when we ramp the lights down at night or whatever. There's lots of things we can change, but we can't change the person. We can only take them by the hand, right? So, yeah. Yes, yes, that's beautiful. Well, and it, and it speaks to how much energy goes into yeah. trying to change the things yeah. we can't change and how, again, how futile that is and how for a parent who's already mm-hmm. tired and doesn't have a lot of extra energy to be using up time on things we can't change is just it's it drains the bucket yeah for sure for sure and if we learn how to sort early on when we have a a, we're faced with a problem or um, a decision we have to make if we know right away is it a can change it or can't change an issue that really helps you to sort of then move to your sub buckets from there kind of thing so I would like you to speak to the free resources that you offer because I think that's a great place for parents to start you know what is it that they can absorb from you your wisdom your training you know before they're sort of make an investment i think there are many situations where the investment is is really valuable but i suspect there's a lot they can do for themselves just with your free resources so could you just sort of share those with us so yes i have a few resources the first being a free monthly workshop that i run that is almost always specifically around sleep and sleep development Um, and that's every month And then I have a couple of resources online. One is about baby sleep myths. So it's taking the myths out or busting the myths around baby sleep. And that one's a helpful one because of the the messages that we get around sleep and what we think it should look like. And so understanding what are actual myths around sleep can really take a lot of the pressure off. And then I have one specifically looking at how to take attachment and understanding attachment from birth right to age five and how that can impact the way that we approach sleep. So it goes through Gordon Neufeld's stages of attachment and looks at how does that impact how we can approach bedtime to support babies better. And it's a whole uh, email series that I have for families that okay. want to sign up. I just have a little tea delivery happening here. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so that yeah, that's fantastic, and I mean, I'm sure that's really valuable. And a lot of just your blog is uh, has some great resources on it. This actually how I came across you was I was searching for something very simple and straightforward in terms of sharing how to 
how to um, deal with a child who is who is acting out or and I came across I'm going to put it in the in the show notes I came across a um, resource you have I'm just gonna it's I think it's called something like discipline to age five um, ways that you can connect something like that I'll put it in the show notes but it was a it was a really lovely resource and it was simple like there was six different sort of steps and then a short paragraph after each step so we could get a real real picture of where where are we going with this and I, I found that really helpful. I've shared a few times now. That was how I first actually connected with you. And then I thought, oh my gosh, look what you're offering here. This is amazing. And it really is. I, I mean, I think what you're doing is is a, is a really remarkable um, gift for parents. The other um, thing that I wanted to sort of talk about, well, first of all, that you, you can do this worldwide, right? I have a lot of American listeners, so you're Canadian, but any people all over the world could access this. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Even though I'm an OT in Ontario, I have um, an international coaching um, portion of my business as an infant sleep educator. Okay. And so when you you have sort of packages, I noticed that you, you have like a, was there like a one month, three month, six month? Is that right? Okay. Yes. Yes. I uh, When I started, I was working hourly, but it's been so rewarding to know that I get to work with families over a number of sessions. We really make a lot of a lot more progress that way. Yeah. So you can really sink in and start peeling back some of those layers around sleep, especially since a lot of it has to do with how parents understand the sleep process right. and how they understand their babies. Okay. And that takes some that takes some ongoing conversation. So I think it would be a nice place to sort of wind up is is maybe by talking a little bit about what sessions would look like. So say somebody you know, purchased your one month package and you do like an exploratory call as well, right? Like that's one of your free resources, which is great. Very generous. Yes. Yes. Which I love to do. Even if someone doesn't work with me, those calls are so lovely because in the very least they know that things don't have to feel as hard as they Yeah, are. exactly. So then what does sessions start to look like if somebody hires your, you for this service? What is, how does that roll out? Right. Well, it's worth, I think, explaining that the way that I work is quite different than what a conventional sleep coach would look like. With conventional sleep coaching, there's usually a very rigid step-by-step process. Right. You know, do step A, then B, then C. And if it's not working, then you must not have followed one of the steps closely enough or tried hard right. enough. Right. Okay. Um, and so the it becomes, uh, the focus is on the parent not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Whereas with when parents work with me, it's it's much more organic. So we're looking at getting to know their baby well enough to figure out what is going to help optimize sleep. And that's that's the word that I use mm-hmm. <clears throat> instead of you know sleep training or instead of rigid schedules. We're looking at how can we understand your baby well enough to optimize when they go to bed, mm-hmm. what the sleep setup looks like. What kind of sleep associations support them the best by taking out, of course, that notion that there are bad sleep habits and instead looking at what is working, mm-hmm. what sleep habits are working to support sleep. And so we we work together to really get to know what layers need to be in place to make sleep feel easier. And so it's, it's very much not a step-by-step process. Okay. It's really walking together to discover what's going to work to make sleep feel easier. Okay. Not just for your baby, but for everything. Okay. And when you do this over a, like a, a longer package, like a three month or six month uh, package, 
are are you taking into consideration the whole family you know as you're doing yeah. this so yeah that, okay maybe ex sort of talk about that a little bit because that i think that's brilliant well and it it i always say to parents that it is rarely mm -hmm. just about sleep it's just that sleep is the biggest most painful or most um, disruptive mm -hmm. part of family life it's the it's the scapegoat but it's also the the thing that's physically and emotionally the most draining and so parents will come to me around sleep but then we talk about temperament we talk about infant development and the new skills that their baby is, is developing whether it's rolling or crawling or talking we talk about family wellness and mental health of the parent and whether the parent is shortchanging mm -hmm. their own sleep um, trying to grab sleep at 11 or trying to grab um, self-care or alone time mm -hmm. at 11 p.m when their bodies are saying yeah. just go to sleep and get rest um, so it really is an entire family-centered approach because um, sleep is just it's the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more that can be folded into understanding that and when a family is doing well, like when everybody's mm -hmm. needs are being met, sleep comes more easily mm -hmm. generally. And when parents can see the bigger picture of how sleep and infant development, like all the skills unfold over time, then they figure out not just how to support sleep based on what their baby needs, but how to support um, outside time or play time mm -hmm. or meal time in the same way um, because it's it's again about those layers not right. about those steps so very often you know we talk we i end up talking a lot about meal times because the same kind of mm -hmm. pressures with sleep show up Absolutely, in meal times as yeah. well this idea around your child needs to eat this much food this many food groups at this stage instead of looking more intuitively at what mm -hmm. is baby ready for and how can we help clear the path for this right. development to happen. So especially for families that work with me over a six month period, we're really, we're really looking at yeah. development. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. I, uh, I, I just think my people are going to benefit so much from just, well, this conversation, but also from the resources that you offer. I think that this is, you know, I think you need to be at the top of everybody's, you know, parenting bucket list. <laughs> I guess if I can actually end off with one last question. Sorry, I got time for one more. Okay, it just occurred to me. Are there things that people can do prior to having baby to, you know, mitigate some of the problems that we have? A sort of self-education, I guess that's what I'm asking. Well, I think I'm, I'm going to compare it to what I did when I was pregnant the first time with our eldest. And I was researching home births. And right. I focused on the positive stories around what I could actually do to support the experience. Right. So in this age, again, of information overload, like there's not a shortage, focus on yeah. the stories that support what you'd like to see unfold in your family so mm. that you have this idea or vision with, of course, the bumps and unexpected turns that parenting will take. Um, but to support yourself with this positive story around discovering who your baby is and supporting their sleep in a positive way instead of it being this um, thing that you need to train them for. Right. This fight you need to have with them. I would also encourage families to, even if they don't plan on bed sharing, we know from the statistics that 
a huge proportion of families bed share at least some of the time. Right. Even if they don't look at it as bed sharing, they may say, right. well, no, I don't bed share. But, you know, at 430, sometimes I bring them into bed with me. Right. Well, that's bed sharing. So <laughs> planning ahead for the possibility of bed sharing so that you can right. do it with confidence. You can Safely. do it with um, with feeling well informed um, and feeling supported by by connecting with those on social media like me and others in a more holistic sleep approach, you're mm-hmm. going to see the stories that support you doing it safely and with confidence. So I, okay. I guess that's, that's how I would answer that one. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely delightful. I, I so appreciate your time and uh, where can people reach you? They can find me on my website at heatherboyd.ca okay. and I'm on Instagram at heatherboyd.ot. Those would be the two main places to find me. Okay. And I welcome anyone to reach out to me. I'm always open for a chat or conversation. I suspect they will. (laughs) Well, this has been immensely pleasurable. I love talking to you. Oh, me too. For me too. Okay. We'll talk soon. Bye.